Your city. Your station. Your Cam FM. Hi, welcome back. This is The Science of Fiction with me, Will Thompson. And me, Andrew Holding. And this week we're joined by Kat Arney. Hello, I'm here. Kat, you you do many, many things. I do. I'm an extremely busy woman. So so in in between... um, Hosting a particularly famous podcast and playing in bands, what do you do beside that? Uh, for my day job, dur- well, during the hours of daylight, I work uh, for Cancer Research UK oh. as a science information manager, doing basically writing and going on radio and telly and talking about research, that kind of thing. And then I've been involved in the Naked Scientists, another great Cambridge export, for about 10 years now, maybe wow. a bit longer, uh, since I was wee. And uh, also, yeah, playing in a couple of bands and generally doing freelance radio and writing and keeping busy. And, and keeping up the keeping up the numbers of scientists who are also expert musicians. Yes, uh, there's, there's a number of us out there. I don't know whether there is some particular science music hybrid thing going on, but uh, I certainly like it. Well, it's good because I'm now here and I can't be in any way useful in the music, so it's going to be between you and Will on that. Well, how about let's have a listen to one of your tracks. Okay.
97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm well that was night shift from night shifts sorry from talking colors new album uh yeah that's one of my bands that i play and the album's coming out in may i think i think it probably should have come out last february but it's taken a while but we're, <laughs> we're really happy with Co- it complications outside the studio um yeah Basically, it took us much, 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 much longer to finish it and get it out. And everything, every project takes a lot longer than you think it's going to take. But we're really pleased with it. So. No, it sounds great. I love that song. I love it. Cool. And I think I, I, I found after you, after you mentioned it that you've got a free download of it on Bandcamp. Yes. Um, go and you can Google for we'll, us Talking we'll, Colour. We'll put, it, we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, that'd be cool. And the, uh, the artwork that we've got up now is going to be the artwork for that and the album and um, it was actually the, the reason that I've brought it in today is because it's based on images that were taken from the Large Hadron Collider. So so, so uh, uh, images of the results which, which were yeah. produced by it. We were, we were casting around for ideas for the artwork that sort of sum- summarised what our music was like and I, <laughs> I was flicking through the sun of all of all paragons of science journalism and they had this amazing image, this kind of circular thing with coloured rays shooting out of it. And, uh, and that's like, the picture of the detectors around. Exactly, the it was kind of some of the the images they were coming coming out of it, and we were like kaleidoscope, kaleidoscope, ah. uh, and the kind of the images that. Um, so the artworks that's been used as a, as a source for the artwork. We've got an artist to create it in his own way, but. Uh, kind I mean, of inspired by science. What I find amazing about those patterns though is they're the same sort of patterns I used to get when they used to do the similar things in cloud tanks or get radioactive sources for the cloud you get streamers of clouds forming from the radioactive particles and okay now these big computers and uh, CCDs and cameras and all these different detectors but it all started off basically with very soggy air and alpha particles whizzing through and causing clouds to form in streaked lines and you can go on YouTube and you can go and find pictures of that happening I also like it it reminds me of stuff we used to do at play school you know with rotating discs and paint yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that and, kind of thing well, as well. and, it's and, very satisfying and, and, as, the, as you spin the image faster and faster it blurs into concentric rings of colour yeah and then you like squirt some more paint in it do you I'm going to go home and that? do that <laughs> I, 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 maybe not deliberately <laughs> you had a deprived childhood <laughs> the inability to paint so, if, if, if you are listening to this and you had a, an interesting paint experience as a child, why not write into the show? You can use the web form on the player if you're there. You can email studio at camfm.co.uk. You can text cam plus your message to 80809, which will cost you 10 pence. Um, or you can tweet at thinkoutreach, and we'll see that. Brilliant. So, yeah, we were also just trying to work out what our 
less glamorous place to do physics than the LHC. Well, any other place to do physics than the LHC, because it's kind of overtaken everyone. And I guess it's quite... Uh, the fact that you found the images from this place quite visually appealing, I guess it kind of highlights the difference between the LHC and quite a lot of labs around you know, around the world. I don't know what the Cambridge labs are like, but are they less glamorous? Oh, I never went there. I was a biologist here. We had uh, nothing to do with the physicists. They were kind of the weird numbery people. Right, right. And you do feel that the output of physics is basically numbers. Numbers. A lot of numbers. And computer-generated p- pictures of particles. Exactly. I'm not very good with numbers. So S- some just... stars. They do stuff about stars. Oh, yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. But yeah. is that physics or is that astronomy? Well, they call it physics. I call it astrophysics, don't they? We could get. We've had Andy Bonson in here before. Actually, he's an astrophysicist. Ah, yeah. Yes, he's never watched any TV shows. It was a great ser- episode. We had. To, it was basically <laughs> explaining the physics in episodes and then getting him to tell us about it. I think, I, th- I think it worked quite well from the point of view of you know summarising for listeners and him not having any preconceptions. Yeah, and if you want to see a movie that has some accurate time tap travel, apparently Prime is a movie to see. Absolutely. So speaking of colours, though, um, there was this, art- this article recently about a 230% efficient, electrically efficient LED. So supposedly you put in. Um, 10 milliwatts of power and 23 milliwatts of light come out. Yeah, I mean this. This was. This, I'll wait. I'll wait for this to actually settle down. But at the moment, I'm kind of thinking, no. And then I read a bit more. The author of the paper, it's in Physics Letters Review or something like that. So I'm not up on my physics journals. But at least they admit that it is actually getting the energy elsewhere. It's saying it gets cold and it's pulling heat in from the outside surroundings. Though that still has questions of whether it's converting heat energy into a more ordered form of light energy, which would be questionable by the second law of thermodynamics, which says you just make disorder, whatever you try doing. That's very evident in mice. House. Um, <laughs> not, but, and not in mice. And not in, not in mice? I don't know. If, my, if, mice uh, make disorder as well. Oh, They're making disorder in my kitchen right now. <laughs> yeah, I okay. um, but of course, if this is true, this has great things because LEDs are used for light solutions. And if you have like small chips, computer chips that are trying to use light instead of electrons, we then have a brilliant way of also cooling down the chip at the same time. So it could make for better computing. But we're, it I'm going to wait and see. It just does sound weird. Well, it, it sounds very contrary to me. It's, I, I, I don't know whether we're going to end up with one of these neutrinos faster than light, Simon so Singh eating a shorts kind of. You, are you going to eat your pants if this turns I, out to I'm, be right? See, neutrinos faster than light, I'm more confident on this because it does, it does have a bit more credibility. Well, it, they, well they, they, they found, they, they found, that found that the experimental error. Yeah, they, hadn't, work, they, the nutri- they hadn't wired their computer up right. They're GPS like that, unit. Yeah. yeah, there's a wire for that. So w- would you be prepared to stake your pants on, on efficient LEDs? No. Uh, Okay, well, all all our pants are secure here. We'll be back after this. Moonlit march on a scorching plain Parched and weary and soul in vain In the distance a searching light Beckons him into the night. Goddess will sway and kiss Get 
You gone for I'll torch this den Mischievous temptress of men City. Your station. Your Cambridge. Your Cam FM. Welcome back. That was Concubine Waltz by Sunday Driver, another one of Cat's many bands. Oh, oh, do you have more than two bands? I, I'm down to two now. There was one point when I was playing in five bands, and that was just absolutely <laughs> lunatic period not, of my life. I'm not, two. I'm not sure there are enough days of the week for that. Yeah. I guess that was a problem you found. It got, it got quite busy, but so I'm, ha- I'm just down to two. How many instruments do you play? <sighs> I'm not sure now. Um, <laughs> my my main instrument's the harp, but I also play uh, clarinet. That's me playing clarinet on that one. Um, clarinet, bass clarinet, things you blow down, things you hit. I play <laughs> spoons in Sunday Driver. <laughs> Mostly have, years of classical training. Do you have a tea chest in Sunday Driver yet? No, no. We have a, a real live bass player who plays uh, a real live bass. Can you get a tea chest just for one track? That'd be pretty cool. I love tea chests. <sighs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, get, get a proper vintage tea chest to make it out of as well. Yeah, we could do that. I'm after, at the moment, I'm just after a box to put my leg on when I play the spoons, because I think <laughs> would look cool. A so. decent, decent... I, I'm obviously not up on spoon playing techniques. Anyway, so this... this, this I've, I'd heard that you played in a steampunk band, but apparently mm. this wasn't an intentional thing. Yeah, so Sunday Driver is a Cambridge band, actually. We've been around for a long time. I first joined it when I was doing my PhD here. And we... We kind of started off as a very standard acoustic band playing, you know, nice gentle pop songs with a harp and guitar and things like that. 
And then we got really interested because uh, some of the guys in the band are of, of Indian origin. And we got really interested in looking at historical themes and we started reading Kipling and looking at uh, the Raj and that, the influence of the Raj and all sorts of things. And started the, the influences started to come through in our music. We did a lot of training in Indian music. And then also we started looking at concepts for our artwork for our first album, which came out a couple of years ago, called In the City of Dreadful Night, which is after a piece written by Kipling and a, by the poet J.J. Thompson. And it's about kind of, one's about Bombay and one's about London. And then we started, we thought, well, let's dress up. Let's dress up as Victorians. It's always fun to dress up. So, I mean, I, I love dressing up and I love corsets. So we started dressing up in kind of Victorian and, and Indian costumes. And at that time, we were just gigging in pubs with indie bands. And we turn up, you know, dressed as Victorians with little top hats and corsets. And everyone would go, ah, uh, yes, you are. <laughs> what are you doing? And we're like, no, this is this is our concept. And then it turns out that concept is known as steampunk. Exactly. And we the first thing we heard of it, we've been doing this for about a year and getting nowhere because everyone just thought we were weird. And then we got booked for a gig down in Brighton and there's a really big steampunk scene down in sort of Brighton and the South Coast. And we turned up and the audience was more dressed up than we were. And we were like, we've found our people. These are our people. And we suddenly discovered there was a whole scene. There's, you know, sort of forums. There's um, conventions that we go and play at. Uh, lots and lots of opportunities for dressing I'm up. I'm just amazed you can play your instruments in courses. Oh, no. Um, it helps with the breath control. If you, I don't do it too tightly. <laughs> I only do it really tightly for photo shoots. But um, <laughs> that, that's the trick. That's true. Tighten it up to make yourself look thinner. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's a good thing I get out of wearing corsets, really. Yeah. They're fun. I, I enjoy wearing a corset. It's I a good just, feeling. I just don't have the shape for one, I don't think. If you wore a corset, you would. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. Maybe we'll try this one day. Um, that's how it works. But I think it's interesting you, you, you were saying about you know drawing influence from historical figures because um, one of the things I think is a little bit strange about the steampunk movement is it's kind of gla- glamorising uh, one particular aspect of Victorian society, namely the kind of the, the aesthetic. Um, but there are lots of really negative things about Victorian society. Yeah, I mean, you know, hideous infant mortality and constant threat of death from infectious disease and prostitution and the massive, massive racism and oppression and all sorts of things, yeah, are really things that don't get celebrated. I think it was better back then. I mean, I I really (laughs) wish I could send my children up the chimney to clean it. I know, it would, you know, save save on the bills. We have a lack of chimneys as well, haven't we? But it is very interesting what, what people take forward and being involved in the steampunk scene what you really like is the the inventiveness mm-hmm. and it's the actually it's the victorian spirit of invention and uh, you know, people are it is quite punk in that in punk loads of people are just making stuff themselves mm-hmm. and you go to steampunk conferences and people are putting you know digital cameras and webcams in box brownies <laughs> and so everyone's kind of going around with these little box brownies but actually beaming your pictures to the web updated for now yeah because there's this novel by neil stevenson called the diamond age where it's set in the future where people have kind of formed into non-regional uh, clans or I think they're called files um, and one of those is the um, is, is a neo-Victorian society and so yeah on the one hand it's like all about invention and you know moving science forward but on the other hand it ends up sort of reinforcing a lot of these it, it brings back in you know, a very strong class system gender sn- stereotypes gender stereotypes kind of sneering at um, those who are not you know at the same intellectual level or in the same more to the point the same social class yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, particularly being an Anglo-Asian band, in uh-huh. that we are pretty much the only Anglo-Asian steampunk band in the world. Um, and it it is a very 
not a very racially diverse kind of scene and it's it's interesting where it's grown up from it sometimes feels like basically steampunks are what goths do when they grow up because you can <laughs> still dress up but there's loads of exciting nerdy stuff and um, it is wonderful and more colour yeah it's more colourful you can you know wear bright makeup and stuff um, but the, the spirit of invention and the spirit of discovery and knowledge and, and rediscovering all these amazing writers but, people like H.G. Wells and stuff is just cool there is some beautiful thing though about Victorian technology when you go and see something like uh, the Babbage's engine you know this massive mechanical machine okay it's not powerful but just the workmanship of how it's made and it's a piece of art as well as a machine where you wouldn't go and buy a Dell PC and go that's a piece of art yeah, you know? it's, it's the craft and the ingenuity of it and the that they they were the kind of the first real generation to think we can solve problems through technology and really applying the technology and that I think is is very very cool and that that's what I like to take out of this whole scene that and the corsets that and the corsets <laughs> I guess applying technology where you can is, is great until you get it wrong like, I guess there was there was quite a lot of uh, early work with nuclear technology which was, was thought to be this miracle cure for everything yeah so this was something because we're just when we're writing the show notes trying to work out what else we talk to them there's, there's sort of in the internet, this sort of nuclear punk idea. I just made that word up. Don't think it means anything. Don't Google. <laughs> it might well do, actually. But there are people who sort of reminisce about the nuclear age before it became a negative thing. And it was a very positive thing for a while. And uh, to the point that Ford actually came up with a concept car called the Ford Nucleon. And you actually nuclear reactor, you slotted in the back. And when it ran out of nuclear fuel, you slot in a new one. So, so you, you go to your convenient uh, radioactive uranium uh, store. I'd, I'd like it. Just fill her up with plutonium, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this was in uh, 1958 Ford came up with this. And it was just, you know, you basically could drive halfway around the world and you wouldn't need to refill. Uh, I do. I love I love the kind of the, the ideas that really didn't make it. But I've been doing a big project at work at Cancer Research UK looking back at cancer history. And it's fascinating to see where radiotherapy came from, because right at the turn of the century um, of the 20th century, there there was basically no cures for cancer at all. You had surgery and that was it. And there weren't really anaesthetics and antiseptics. So your surgery was probably going to hideously maim you if it didn't kill you. And uh, and there were all these kind of weird things. There was the new electric therapies and there was radium therapy and all these kind of bizarre treatments coming out. And it turned out that radiotherapy was actually the one that worked. But initially, a lot of people didn't believe it. They thought it was just another of these quack treatments and it was the radiotherapists built a lot of how we do clinical trials and cancer statistics to actually prove that their treatment worked. I mean, what I love is the fact you can actually go and find these in auction shops with these radium... Uh, things you pour water and you put your radium source on top and you open it up because it makes you radioactive I mean, oh my god you can, you can, if you buy them today they're still fairly radioactive you know it's a lump of material and they're just wonderful you know they're wonderful bits of workmanship but radium water on the front and people believed that they worked but didn't believe that radiotherapy worked it was it was something like I think one of the logics was it gave you energy because it was this glowing material so it would energise you mm, before right. it then it gave you really hideous radiation sickness yes yeah. But of course, there weren't many follow-ups in those days. Exactly. And we, we now live in much more enlightened times. Yes, uh, very good thing, I think. Oh, Charlie, 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 the doctor's son was he. Didn't know what to do when he finished school, so they packed him off to sea. Charlie, 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 a modern tragedy. The Navy rum and the tropical sun are sent in Doolally. So get back on the people, Charles, sail far away. The things you said today, they surely meant for me. The men have got the signs of green, it's quite up, we're not going. And there you come round telling me, something bothers the name. 
you can't make a monkey out of me. This isn't the planet of the apes, it's a 19th century. Charlie, 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 well now you stand accused of calling Victoria's dad a chimp and she is not amused. Charlie Darwin, 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 Charlie, Charlie Darwin, oh what the hell are you done? The origin of the species, the species, the species, the origin of the species and the descent of man. It contradicts the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, it contradicts the Bible. What of you is wrong? So get back on the people, child, sail far away. The things you said today, they surely Charlie, 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 what happened to you, boy? We thought you'd join the clergy, not made the Lord annoyed. Charlie, 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 at the age of 51, your family are laughing stock. Look at what you've done! So get back on the people, Charles, sail far away. The things you said today, they surely blasphemy. Let us cloth and sights and green us quite up. Wonderful. Words fail me, sir. Words quite fail me. Your city. Your station. Your Cambridge. Your Cam FM. Welcome back. That was Charlie, referring to Charlie Darwin, by the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Yes, the men that will not be blamed for nothing. They're a three-piece steampunk band. They're a lot more punk than some more, 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 more punk, punk three-piece than steam. proper punk. Oh, they're four-piece, I always forget. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that one piece. Who is he? Uh, the, uh, it's probably the drummer. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we've, we've done quite a lot of gigs with them. They're really, really great guys. And again, they, they're kind of taking the sort of steampunk thing and throwing it in a completely different direction but properly punk the odd thing about the lyrics here is they make the comment that Charlie Darwin I don't never call him Charlie but yeah let's call him Charlie, Charlie Darwin Charlie. Charlie my mate Charlie he um about I mean against the church of course the originally when the church came out their statements were pro-evolution because they thought that if God was going to do anything that was a wonderful way for him to do it they didn't see it as a particularly it, scary thing exactly I mean we could fill an entire show with the terrifying way that the church has moved towards biblical literalism about well, the origins of the universe and the, yeah I mean I think the thing to take away is that in it's about 1960 the current creationism movement turned up and Absolutely. that's far too recent for anyone to take it seriously I but know they do. it really is and uh, it, it's quite terrifying frankly that's kind of yeah, it's a, a surprising development. I don't know. I, it's a, it's interesting when you when you sort of look back at where where people have come from in their ideas about these kind of things. And yeah, people didn't really take the Bible very literally until hmm. this recent resurgence. I mean, obviously they used to, and then they realised that it didn't work. And then, but the the resurgence in America and, and are either of you following the American primaries? Uh, o- no. o- only uh, when people blog about ridiculous things that have been said it's a, no that that's it oh yeah that's <laughs> that's actually what's happening that, that's not just isolated incidents that's the entire thing it's all like that and you know the the seems like virtually the entirety of america seems to believe that our universe well our planet is only about ten thousand years old has anyone told that another competing parliament member is eating kittens though because that's what in canada that, yeah would work very well but apparently that hasn't happened yet so <laughs> really well, yeah, they, they that, should try that that could work there's a previous show 
someone tried to claim the other one was eating kittens. Oh well, and, and was a lizard. Anyway, <laughs> uh, towards kind of more kind of ethic, like more uh, everyday ethics and so on. Um, you mentioned a novel by uh, Jennifer Roan, yeah. uh, Experimental Heart. Yeah, I've got um, two books here in front of me by uh, by Jenny Roan, who's a good friend of mine, and also probably one of the few people I know who is busier than me. We're always trying to meet up for a drink, and she's always so busy. Um, but she's she's a scientist, practicing okay. scientist, and has written two amazing novels based on scientific themes, and also runs the um, Science the is Vital Science is Vital campaign, which was oh, very active in trying to keep the sort of science budgets. Oh, okay, okay. Because like, I, I recognise her name, and I think I'd seen her photograph on a byline, and I couldn't think where. She is awesome, and, and very, very busy. That's her on the back, there. That's what she looks like. Making yeah. great radio, that's her picture, there. Um, <laughs> so she's written, she's written two books. The first book that she published is uh, Experimental Heart, and it is about, um, it's about research ethics, and kind of the, it's a science thriller, really. And it gets very exciting and there's kidnappings and all sorts of very exciting things. Um, and ask the question, of it, really, that science is a lot to do. It's not just about the data, that there are ethics and morals and personal relationships and it all gets a bit twisty. And then in her second book as well called The Honest Look, which I think is probably a better read for people without a scientific background. Because in her first book, In Experimental Heart, a lot of the plot hinges on really technical scientific story oh, so, and whether so, it's right or not so the, so, so the, the, the kind of lab setting is not just just a setting for a, a backdrop it's yeah, actually, the, it's actually the, like the integral th- to the story yeah the thriller a lot of the thriller is, is in the research and you kind of if you've got any scientific background you really feel yourself getting drawn into the data and how are they going to show this that, and it oh. kind of comes to the climax and then it all goes a bit a bit crazy whereas the second book um she says throwing it around um, the honest look again it's there's a lot of research based stuff in it but it's about this um, scientist who goes to Amsterdam to work with this crazy big old machine that's sort of part Hal part you know Heath Robinson contraption hmm. and she works for a company and discovers through her research that maybe the drug that they've pinned all their hopes on might not actually be as good as they think and then the ethics, of, and then she gets involved in a relationship with the director of the company, and the ethics of how that all huh. shakes down as we, well is we, fascinating. Which seems a, a little more, a little less than lip service to like scientific ethics than say, in films like Minority Report, where there was this thing of you know, oh no, maybe this this technology is not as reliable as it, as it was said to be. But it's really very basic le- level of scientific literacy I guess there's, there's not really much of an ethical qualm involved in many of these stories yeah and I think people certainly there's a wonderful book uh, as well by Michael Brooks I don't know if you've read um, the Free so Radicals oh Free Radicals he's yeah. actually talking at the Science Festival Ooh. on March the 17th um, he's actually so I also run a, an event called ThinkCon on March 17th and if you Google for Think Outreach, as you go thinkoutreach.org, you can find all the details on there. Because his book is brilliant. Um, because, it, I mean, there's a lot of scientists I know who are like, don't write this book, Michael! Because it's basically pointing out that scientists are A, human, and B, massively anarchistic about stuff. And the, there's this concept that science is done in a very, very rigorous way, and you have your hypothesis, and you do your experiments, and you prove it, and you publish, and everyone believes it. You mean that isn't the case? No. I'm shocked. And... So am I wasting my time doing it that way? No, because you you are doing it. That's how it, the business of it is done. 
but there's this whole culture around it of why certain experiments get done and the arguments that people have about it and you know and some of the experiments where people were just doing experiments on themselves because they couldn't get an ethics committee to approve it. All kinds of really anarchic yeah, things. Such, such as the initial experiments on Viagra, which I'm not going to um, relate on the show, but if you Google, you'll find out. The, is that the, the one about the guy who goes to the conference to that, present his data in yeah, living, well, he, living he, form? He presented his, his Viagra data in the flesh, if you like. I, yes. I think it was a That's predecessor to Viagra. Okay. It's how not to do science communication. I, guess I think that's an amazing way to do science Well, with your trousers around your ankles. Certainly <laughs> get the point across. <laughs> Literally. No, no, no one's going to forget that. No, I think no. extremely memorable. It's got all the elements you want. Well, we all know it. But that, that's an amazing story to look up, uh, that one. But I think, wasn't it the um, data on Helicobacter showing that Helicobacter is this bacteria that lives in your stomach that causes ulcers and gastritis? The guys who discovered that, and they won a Nobel Prize for it. But because the, no one believed them at the beginning. So they had to just feed themselves. Yeah, they, the guy just drank like a pint of Helicobacter and then got quite ill. I mean, I, I guess it would be quite hard to find test subjects for that. You know, so, you know, what, what, what is this study for? We're going, we think we're going to give you stom- stomach ulcers. Like, who, who would no, ever sign up? There was that? there was someone, and I, I'm really sorry, I can't remember who it was. It was <coughs> one of he was a reasonably important. He was working for a reasonably important group, and he starved himself for like ages to prove that scurvy was caused by malnutrition, and he killed himself. Because when he got sick, he had just done so much damage, he couldn't come back. Ooh. Which is really unfortunate, because scurvy is actually really easy to come back from. But he'd obviously done, found about three so other different damage. diseases at the same time. Uh, there's, there's lots of stories like this. There's a guy, I was doing something for the Naked Scientist about how do Eskimos get all their vitamins, and they kind of, they scrape by. Isn't it, isn't um, it from livers? But yeah, this, this guy, he went and lived, a researcher, he went and lived on an Eskimo diet perfectly healthily, and then became quite a convert to it. Um, yeah, telling everyone that you you can't. There is some evidence for some vitamin deprivation, but you can get more or less enough. Of course, now suddenly on the news, I've been going on about how everyone's got, going to get rickets because we don't get enough vitamin D. But yeah, that's a really complicated story. We we could talk about that one for ages because with my, my with my work hat on, my cancer research UK hat on, you go, yeah, people should obviously get enough vitamin D. But then you get people going, and so that means you should cover yourself with baby oil and get really sunburned. <laughs> Have the naked scientists done anything on that story? We did a show a couple of oh, it's a couple of months ago. We did a, a whole show on vitamin D and looking yeah, at the the ins and outs of it. So um, go and look on the naked scientists archive yep. if you're interested. Okay, and well, from here, I think we're going to break into Joss Whedon's attic. Laundry day, see you there Under things, tumbling Wanna say, love your hair Here I go, mumbling With my freeze ray, I will stop the world With my freeze ray, I will find the time To find the words to Tell you how, how you make Make me feel, what's the phrase? Like a fool, kinda sick, special needs, anyways. With my freeze ray, I will stop the pain. It's not a death ray or an ice beam that's all Johnny Snow. I just think you need time to know that I'm the guy to make it real. Feelings you don't dare 
and we'll make time stand still. That's the plan. Rule the world, you and me, any day. Love your hair. What? No, I I, I love the air. <laughs> anyway, with my freeze ray, I will stop. Your city. Your station. Your Cambridge. Your Cam FM. Welcome back. That was my freeze ray, the uh, second track from the soundtrack to Doctor Horrible's Sing Along Blog. <sighs> I am such basically I'm such a big fan of Nathan Fillion the actor um, and I, I've justified bringing this in basically because Nathan Fillion did a show called Firefly Joss Whedon um, Space Western which yeah. is kind of referenced by a lot of people who are into steampunk are also very much into uh, Firefly and kind of uh, brown coats it was, it was a similar kind of ourselves. a similar kind of vibe of, of taking you know the future in space but yeah. th- throwing it back into you know the wild west type setting exactly I, I do love that kind of thing juxtaposing different attitudes and, and into a different setting but yeah w- uh, one thing I wanted to point out about the Dr. Horrible sing-along blog is that it came out of the US writers strike so no one was doing any writing no TV was getting made all this kind of stuff and so there were all these actors just cooling their heels waiting for things to do and Joss Whedon got a bunch of his mates together including Nathan Fillion Neil Patrick Harris known to some as Doogie Howser apparently not to you not, not known to me as Doogie yeah, so known, you, known to others as uh, Barney from How I Met Your Mother. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, also, I don't watch enough telly, so I only remember Doogie Howser from when I was a kid. Uh, but they they just put this thing together in a matter of days. I think they shot it over a week or something. And they, they recorded and the um, soundtrack in uh, Josh Whedon's attic. In their house, and, and then released it on the internet in episodes, and it just went mental because it's really brilliant it's really tightly scripted it's very funny it's very well done obviously has Nathan Fillion being incredibly hot in it (laughs) and um, did I mention he's incredibly hot Um, no 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 (laughs) it just comes across how many Um, degrees centigrade uh, very hot 100 (laughs) 100 degrees at least Uh, but also I really like the kind of DIY culture because that's what I do with my bands and a lot of the stuff I think you can just you, if you get good people together, you can do stuff really easily. I mean, to be fair, um, Joss Whedon did inject you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of his own, of his own money, uh, yeah. which you know it's reasonably it well shot. You know, it's yeah, not yeah. done on, a, on an iPhone. There but, is coming up though this sort of sci-fi film festival thing in London where you have to make a movie in twenty-four hours, forty-eight hours. And that sounds like a really cool thing. Yeah, I I just think, you know, people trying to do it themselves, recording music yourself, making videos yourself, putting it out. I did a video shoot with my band last weekend. And, yeah, the the guy in the band, uh, this was Talking Colour, his wife is a film director. But she just pulled in a whole bunch of people and put this crew together and shot a video. It was great fun. Of course, the um, the plot revolves around uh, Dr. Horrible's Inventions in his own attic, right? Exactly. So it's it's kind of quite self self referential in that sense. You know, it's it's someone making something on a low budget and you know trying to steal the Wonderflonium or whatever to, to to make his freeze ray. But um, of course, the real thing was made in someone's attic with you know the Wonderflonium of lots of money. But you know, and and the right connections. Exactly. It does, it does show that you can go a long way with a good idea. I I'm think, just really disappointed you can't actually make freeze rays. <laughs> I, unless someone know, could correct me, but. Yeah, any listeners with a freeze ray, don't fire it during the show, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, then bring it in so they can see it. I can't think of any way to make one. I would love to. Um, some yeah, some kind of liquid nitrogen water pistol. You're going to need a lot of liquid nitrogen, though. Yeah. Yeah. A really big water pistol. <laughs> and some really, really warm gloves. 
Hmm. I'm not sure how that how that's going to work out. But speaking of gloves, there were these. Um, one of the one of the nice things about Firefly is it was you know ostensibly a science fiction show, but there really there was very little sci-fi in it. I mean, apart from the fact they lived on a spaceship, which they pointed out during the show. Um, I think one of the only really kind of outlandish things they 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 feature were these these, these characters called Hands of Blue. Uh, right. Who wear these like weird blue gloves, and they have some kind of device that magically like dissolve people's brains or something. Yeah, Why? a lot of the medicine in it is very science fiction. I guess. Oh, I guess that's true. There was yeah. the there was the whole sequence in the hospital. Yeah, exactly. The, the medicine is very science fiction, but the people are just people, right. and they're basically you know these these are like space pirates or space cowboys. I completely going around about stuff. Blue. Have you come across Cowboy Bebop? No. It's a Japanese anime. Uh, oh. And there is an English dub that's been made if you don't like subs. But yeah, that's about three people on a ship and it's just going around. And that's got very much a cowboy feel. It's, it's also very weird being Japanese, but it's probably one of the more accessible animes out there. Oh, sure. My, my housemate's very into films and I, if I tell him to get it, he'll probably get it. Yeah, so there's a, I think there's one series and a movie. So someone came up with quite a good gallery of um, of stills from Cowboy Bebop and stills from the recent um, uh, what's his name the the the, the 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 detective whose name I can't remember Benedict Cumberbatch's character oh Sherlock Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, so someone found loads of stills showing how Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes sitting in exactly the same poses or smoking in the same pose as um, Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop it's yep. uncanny. How 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 so, yeah, so it's, it's, each other. it's four characters on a ship: Spike, um, Faye, a big guy I can't remember the name, and of. a dog called Ein. Dog called Ein, and a boy called Edward. No, a girl called Edward. A girl called Ed. Yes, yes. yes. Oh, that sounds cool. And um, but, but it's, it's a similar kind of vibe. Like they happen to be in the future on a space on a on a spaceship, but it really is a, de- a detective story. Yeah. yeah, I would say it's detectives, and I'd also say that the first few episodes are actually some of the weaker ones. I guess I guess that, that that's not. That un- uh, unforeseeable. Like, I guess people have the big splash for the pilot, maybe, but then it takes a while to kind of get to set the scene and get things going. I mean, the first hour of Firefly is quite slow, but the first episode is two hours long, so yeah, it gets going. But you have to watch through uh, an hour. You've got of, like, a lot of Nathan Fillion to look at, though. That kind of does make it speed by. Oh uh, well, I we feel. all get um, summer. <laughs> is summer glow in that? Summer Glow, isn't yeah, it? She, yeah, she comes to that a bit later. Yeah, she, but there's uh, there's Kaylee. She's quite hot and Inara. Oh, nice, yeah. nice ladies. Yeah. Big, big fan of the weed and not eye candy then he's, he's got a good choice in actors for uh, physical form <laughs> <laughs> also very good eye for plot I think and w- w- my housemates and I as well we do like um, every so often when I get a chance they, they watch box sets and mm. so we did do the whole box set of Buffy and I dipped in oh, and out wow. but yeah the, sitting down the whole 10 series of Buffy is amazing to see the, the arc and the way you the can also see it get together. better though yeah, definitely, That's, and it gets more complex as well, and more, much more kind of psychological, and, and looking into really deep social issues. Right, it st- stops just being basically a, t- a teen drama with vampires, and becomes sort of more, more serious and more gritty. Much as I hate to use that word, but it becomes a real psychological explanation of all the issues that you know you think about, particularly as a teenager growing up. Am I right in feeling that you horribly revealed to me though, that Joss Whedon wrote Alien Resurrection? Yes, he did, which, which, really? which, I, I, which I was horrified to discover. But he also, um, he, he, he's said after the fact that he doesn't like the result, well, obviously. But he, he, he claims that the actors did say the words that he wrote, but that... But not in the right order. <laughs> yeah, something like that. You know, it was, it, they followed the script, but they didn't really follow the, the, the spirit of the thing, and it didn't have the right look or feel, or the actors didn't really feel the roles or something. But yeah, maybe not his proudest moment. Oh. Everyone's got to do stuff for money, though. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, and also you've got to risk things. Sometimes things will go wrong. I, I'm really curious, actually, on a, if we just stick on any for a moment, the Prometheus, this alien prequel that is not an alien prequel by uh, Ridley Scott is coming out, and I'm actually interested to see that because he often doesn't go back to things he's done before. Mm. And, and, and in this case, it kind of slightly is and isn't. Like It's set in the same universe, but it's not... It's not a direct prequel, right? Well, you say that, but the alien ship you see wrecked at the at the start of the original Alien movie is seen crashing into the planet. So he says it's not a direct prequel. Don't get too up on the alien stuff, but it's going to be good. Um, which, of course, he's going to say he's trying to sell it. But, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious where it goes, because it's not often people are going to go back and try something like that, especially when aliens have such a bad time with Alien vs. Predator and all those not so great movies yeah there's a whole saga behind all the different directors they've had for the different aliens films and like when james cameron came into the second one everyone just hated him no one worked with him because they just thought he was an idiot the actors yeah the the crew the crew none of the crew would work properly with him because he was this young american upstart Mm. and um come in and and everyone's like this guy has no idea we worked for ridley you know this guy just doesn't know what he's doing Uh, and he did know what he's doing apparently well he did and made a really uh a good film but did he also do terminator 2 Cameron. He did the first Terminator, oh, but Terminator it, it hadn't come out by that point, so everyone just thought he was, you know, this guy knows nothing. And I then, was looking back, that was a kind of funny, funny thing to have said about. Well, exactly, but it hadn't come out. He had no track record, mm. so um, so and no then, one believed yeah, that he was, was any good. And three, I believe, went awfully wrong because the director who got it didn't even want it in the end. There'd been so much fighting over, it was just horrible. Jinx right. films. Anyway, let's come back shortly with a different, uh, a different kind of horrible doctor. Anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single psychic who's been able to prove under reasonable experimental conditions that they are able to read minds. And if anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single astrologer who's been able to prove under reasonable experimental conditions that they can predict future human events by interpreting celestial signs. And if anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single homeopathic practitioner who's been able to prove under reasonable experimental conditions that solutions made up of infinitely tiny particles of good stuff dissolved repeatedly into relatively huge quantities of water have a consistently higher medicinal value than a similarly administered placebo. And if anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single spiritual person who's been able to show either empirically or logically the existence of a higher power with any consciousness or interest in the human race or ability to punish or reward humans for their moral choices or that there is any reason other than fear to believe in any version of an afterlife. (laughs) I will give you my piano. (laughs) One of my legs. And my wife. Ninety-seven point two camfm.co.uk on air and online. Your camfm. Welcome back. That was Tim Minchin, the famous-ish comedian, singer, songwriter, with his song "If You Open Your Mind Too Much, Your Brain Will Fall Out," <laughs> um, with the subtitle "Take My Wife." Well, the reason it's "Take My Wife" is because he stole the title. Right, exactly. He, he, he claims he read it, but he didn't give credit to, to whoever he read, whoever's book it was that he read the title in. I think he does sometimes in his live shows. Okay, the, the, in the, the version I've seen, that was, that was from uh, a DVD whose name I can't read on the air. Um, um, <laughs> 
he, he mentions that he stole the title but doesn't mention who from oh well I've definitely read that sentiment somewhere I, th- I think that's very true there seems to be a big uh, idea now that we should be very critical and very you know open your mind to all these possible things and there's a difference between being sceptical and considering alternatives and to actually going it might be you just don't know do you you certainly come across as when talking about homeopathy which you I'd just don't know do you it might work it yeah, <laughs> yeah open mindedness doesn't mean being open to anything regardless of its credentials it means you know be, be being prepared to to accept evidence but Exactly, and you you have to look at the evidence, and that's what it what it all boils down to. Also, if we had a physicist in here going on about Bayesian statistics, they would say you also have to take into account what's gone before, which is obviously not the standard thing. So when a paper comes out saying, "Look, we might just have slightly above placebo for this alternative medicine," you have to go, "Well, the other thousand papers that say it don't work means that you need to give me a thousand papers that show it do work." Which exactly, the um, thing which really annoys with homeopathy is when one of these positive papers does come out, you go. Well, you got a naught point naught one significant. You know, it's tiny little bit significant. Yeah. Over, and you go. You're telling me this can cure cancer. Yeah. If it's that, if we need to use a lab and this and everything to show it works, that isn't what you're claiming. Yeah. Given that nobody else has found this ever doing those kind of experiments, and there's a. Shall I lead on to this other little book that I brought in? Why not? So there's a, another book that I'm afraid this isn't fiction because basically I hardly ever, ever, ever read fiction, um, as we've seen, unless it's written by my friends or has Nathan Fillion in. Um, <laughs> but this is a book uh, written by a guy called Pope Brock, and it's called Charlatan. It's the fraudulent life of John Brinkley. And this is just a wonderful, wonderful story about... It, it reads like fiction because you just can't believe the brass neck of this guy. He was a um, uh, not a doctor, but he was someone practising as a doctor in the early 20th century in America. So he was a quack? He was basically, he was a complete quack and he knew it and he was out, out to defraud from the start. And his, the method of his defraudment was basically transplanting goat testicles... Um, into men for the purposes of boosting their virility. And bear in mind that this was before the discovery of sex hormones and testosterone and the fact that basically later people discovered you could grind up testicles and extract the testosterone and give it to men and it would make them feel excited. Um, but yeah, his, his, so there was kind of some science there. But mostly... But he, he, but he didn't know it. Well, no, he didn't know it because what he was doing was basically charging people huge amounts of money to... Um, bits of goat testicles into into their own testicles and he he built an empire on it and he was really the first example of people using the power of the mass media to broadcast and it was he set up a massive they wouldn't let him broadcast in the US so he just set up a massive transistor in Mexico and was broadcasting the strongest radio signal in the whole of the US you could hear him almost up to Canada huh. just and he was getting um, musicians in all kinds of people. He made a great radio station, and, and all the time talking about his quack treatments and getting musicians in to talk about his yeah sham to support his sham science. Yeah, well, just getting musicians in and saying come and come play some songs on my show. They weren't anything to do with uh, sham okay, science. He okay. was he was broadcasting a radio station, which happened to talk about his, his which his happened to all the advertising was bonkers stuff, and they they absolutely coined it in. And in the end, uh, well, he got struck off. Um, There's a guy um, Morris Fishburne from the American Medical Association kind of pursued him because he knew he was just a riotous quack. And this is where you start getting as well the big conspiracy theories that we see about some of these alternative yeah, treatments I've been today. Because I've been accused to be one of the modern conspiracy theories just for claiming basic chemistry. Exactly. And people say, oh, the FDA hates all these practitioners because they've got the cure, they've got the answer. It's like, 
they're trying to make people safe. Hundreds of people died under John Brinkley's hands in surgery, and thousands and thousands and thousands of more were either not helped or just massively ripped off. And you see parallels again with this stuff happening today, with sort of the, the quack cancer clinics, particularly the ones down in Mexico, um, where people are, are not being helped, are being ripped off. And as soon as you turn around and go, there's no evidence for this. Where is there evidence? You're accused of suppressing people. Yeah, so the one I got involved in was Miracle Mineral Solution, which mm. is basically, I mean, even admit this, it's drinking bleach. And they say that, oh, we'll use it to purify water. But that's kind of different from drinking it yourself. And then, yeah, he said that, oh, it only finds the bad bacteria, but it doesn't go after the good bacteria. <laughs> and he also said that, he says, oh, yeah, it was that cancer's made by little bugs inside you. And it's just two completely ridiculous. And like, you go, well, tell me where you get these things from. And they couldn't. So in the end, I just got accused of being a conspirator. No, it's it's, it's, it's all about the data. You have to ask, where is the evidence? And, and just going, it could be true. You don't know. It doesn't hold up in my book. No. No, well, there was there was this film about um, Andy Kaufman called Man on the Moon, um, which had a sort of similar. It was it's a it's a it's a drama, but it's about a real story. Like he really did die at the well, not he didn't die at the hands of a of a quack, but he was taken in by. Well, one. he put all his faith into one, and then when he and in the movie it's portrayed very much. He realizes what's happening when he gets there. He realizes he's been conned, and he works it out, and he sees the irony of it mm. that he himself is a guy who's made a living out of lying to people as for humour not for home people but he would be conned by someone yeah but so supposedly there was a psychic surgery where um, people use their bare hands to create incisions and remove um, cancerous tumours from the body and it turns this out this still goes on in the US yeah there are still people who do this there are so many rogue cancer cures I mean at work we get absolutely played by it and the sad thing is is that not only are people massively ripped off but it means that people aren't getting perhaps the palliative care they need or, or even turning away from cancer what, treatment that might save their lives what was on which was recently in the news the guy who extracts stuff from your urine and gives it back to you ah the Bazinski clinic Bazinski clinic yeah that, we, we do not have enough time to go into that one in great but, detail I mean but that show, that's a massive thing going on at the moment it's a really big thing. I think there's a lot more of that story to come out, and the the evidence behind it is is very sketchy. But basically, the clinic claims to have have given these drugs to thousands and thousands of people over the past few decades, and have pretty much published nothing that stands up at all. So, if you're saying you have this amazing cancer cure and you've treated all these thousands of patients under the auspices of clinical trials, where is the data? Because if it works, publish it, and then people all over the world could benefit from this amazing treatment. That's the same. The only that? thing, the only person who has anything to lose by not publishing this data is the guy who's basically running the clinic. But also the clinical trials, what they claim they are, these people getting treatment, are paid for by the patients. They're in, in some cases, yes, and particularly for the patients in the UK that are going to the US. But that would be the same for any patient in the UK going to a, a legitimate, a different clinical trial in a legitimate cancer centre in the US. Oh. You know, There's other people raising hundreds and thousands of pounds to go to the Memorial Sloan Kettering because of the way that clinical trials work. They're very, very early experimental trials and they're run within a country. And if you want to go and get medical care in the US, that's basically what you're paying you pay, for. Yeah. And it turns out there's people in the US who think that the best new treatments are in Europe. So there's this whole traffic the other way that we're not really aware of. Hmm. It's a very, very interesting and very obviously very difficult and upsetting issue. Yes. It's, it's, it's sad because, you know, people if, if people are spending their time and money on this rather than, you know, time with their families or whatever, then... It's, it's, yeah, and, it, and when you get into a very early stage and very experimental clinical trials, it's it's mm. heartbreaking. And then again, if people are doing all these trials and not publishing the data from them, 
what can you say? You well, can't I, say anything. I didn't read too much on it because I thought it was going a bit strange, but when Steve Jobs died, there's a lot of stuff suggesting that he spent too long trying other things that he didn't actually become aware of how bad he got pancreatic cancer was and he could have saved himself six months I think it was or something like that because he went for alternative treatments before going for operative treatments yeah I, I don't know enough about the medical details of his case yeah, and, but, I, and he had a very odd type of cancer as well, wasn't there was a lot of both sides of the coin yeah. trying to manipulate that story but what was interesting was I think there was one quote from him which was he felt after the fact he got it wrong and that made, obviously he's could have had a matter effect on how long he survived for. Yeah, and this is the difficult thing, is that I think also people don't want to believe that in many cases, we're really good at treating cancer. And so cancer survival rates in the UK are, are doing really well at the moment, but there are still many cancers where we can't do anything. And c- the more we find out about cancer, it just seems harder and more complicated. And even if you get a cancer we can cure, it doesn't mean you'll be the one who'll survive. Well, it, exactly. So it's that's a, a piece of communication that needs doing too. Unfortunately, I think on that kind of... Um, sorry, note. That's about oh all, we have, all, all we have time for today. Um, thanks very much for coming along. That's all right. It's been uh, really, really great fun. And go and cheer yourself up by watching some Firefly. Yeah, I, I need a dose of Nathan Fillion now. So, so this is the, um, the the last episode of the season. Yep. Um, and of course, follow Think Outreach on Twitter for other activities in the kind of Cambridge science yep. field. And there should be loads around stuff around Cambridge at the moment for the Cambridge Science Festival. On which note, see you next time. <laughs>